Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the sunshine. We recognize how important it is for us to feel the warmth of the sun's rays and more so, Lord, for us to, to feel thy nearness and thy presence in our lives, how important that is for us and also for the world. And so we pray, Father, as we've had the opportunity given to us this morning through health and, and other means that we can be here, Father, we pray that our gathering together would not be in vain and thy word would richly bless us and speak to us in a way that thou only canst. So we invite thee, Father, in our midst and ask thee to, to bless those that are present and to bless thy word. According to the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. With the Lord's help, I'd like to read from the, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Hebrews Chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. For every high priest taken from among man is ordained for man in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he said also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from the death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I have read the entire chapter. Recently, I came across a statement which I can't remember uh, verbatim what was exactly said, but it was, it was a statement from a book also which I can't remember. Um, I didn't have a lot of time to read it. I just flipped through it quickly. 
But there was a comment made about someone who um, opposed the, the idea of God, and particularly the God of Christianity. And one of the derogatory remarks made regarding Christianity was that the, the Christian Bible is such a difficult book to read. You require advanced degrees to understand it, and it's, um, otherwise it's nonsensical. And I'm just paraphrasing what the, the uh, individual stated. And I, I do admit that sometimes the, the Bible is difficult to understand. Um, we have here a chapter from a book that, that is not simple reading and that requires effort to, to understand and to, um, to spend time in order to draw the essence and the truths from it. Um, we certainly don't need advanced degrees to do this, but it does require a, a desire. It requires a desire to look into the word and to search diligently uh, in different areas of the scriptures to understand how certain statements are, are their meaning and their overall significance. This is a chapter that I have read many times, and I believe many of you as well. Uh, in fact, when I've read this, I can think of two things, three things that stick, come to mind. One is the, this idea of the, the priesthood from Aaron, the Levitical priesthood from the Old Testament that was ordained uh, through the law of Moses, that those that would descend from Aaron would, uh, which would be the, the tribe of Levi, would take on the office of the priesthood within the um, nation of Israel to serve uh, the nation of Israel with respect to the offerings and the sacrifices uh, and the intercession with God in the tabernacle. The other thing that comes out in this chapter is that, that this famous phrase that uh, Jesus Though he were a son, verse 8, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And, and that is, says a lot. In, it, by itself, it's, it's a whole topic. And then there is also um, the last few verses that talk about this idea of milk and meat. This concept of, you know, when we hear the word of God or when we are uh, taught in the principles of the doctrine of Jesus Christ, those principles can be communicated in a way that are very basic and rudimentary that anyone can understand, such as, for instance, the, the idea, the concept, that man is separated from God, from the living God, because of our sins, and that we need to first acknowledge that state that we're in, a state of separation because of sin, and that we need to repent. We need to have a change of mind and attitude towards our state. And we need to then repent in, towards God, have faith in who God is, and, and have faith and believe that the forgiveness of our sins and the removal of this state of separation between God can, can come about through the offering of the blood and of the body of Jesus Christ a perfect offering 
As Brother Doug um, mentioned in his prayer, Jesus Christ is our propitiation, which means in the Old Testament also, not only is he the, the, um, the means by which we attain forgiveness, it is also a word used to express the mercy seat, a topic that Brother Doug preaches often about. I believe it's probably very dear to him. Um, this idea that in the Old Testament, in the holies of holies, in the tabernacle that was set up in the wilderness, at, at the commandment of God to Moses, Moses then communicated to the children of Israel that there was this, this holies of holies that only the high priest could go in once every year and that he can entreat God for his mercies at this place called the mercy seat and that God would accept that, that petition, that supplication for the mercy of God on the basis that blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And, and Jesus Christ is that mercy seat. He is the one to whom we approach entreating God through Jesus Christ for the mercies of God. That on the basis of the blood sprinkled or Jesus Christ's blood that was shed, God is willing to receive our, our petitions, our prayers and supplications and is on the basis of that blood able to forgive us all our sins. Those are the principles of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Beyond that, we also speak about this faith, this identification with Jesus Christ. We speak about that when we have that faith that uh, uh, gives us the comfort in our heart and in our mind that as we approach Jesus Christ who is the mercy seat on the basis of his blood and we're able to attain forgiveness when we sincerely seek it that when we having that faith we know that we have identified with the death of Christ we, we make that public statement through the baptismal uh, ordinance which we then identify with his death and we identify with his resurrection to live a newness of life empowered by God through his Holy Spirit that now becomes resident in us. That's the principles of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And they are simple, simple to understand, easy to communicate. The question then, and that's a big question and there's a, and, and there's a significant ingredient needed is that we must mingle that communication, that knowledge. It has to be mingled with faith in order for it to actually bear fruit in our lives. That's milk. But we move on beyond that milk. As Christians, and, and, and anyone who is not yet a Christian but is listening to this, we, as Christians, we are, we are required now to to strive after allowing God to shape us and mold us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And all we need to do to understand that simple message is to go to the Gospels. That's all we need. We just need to go to the Gospels and understand who Jesus was, what was it he did, and what then are we expected to become. We are expected then through faith, in submission to the will of God to become like his son. And he showed for us the perfect 
example of what it means to submit to the will of God, in his case, to the will of his Father and to us, because we are now adopted as Christians into the same family, it is the same Father we wish to submit to. Jesus showed us the perfect way to submit to the will of God. And that submission through, we hear in verse 7 here, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, in that he reverently worshipped, he respected who God was, who his father was. And we don't have time this morning, but certainly we can go to Matthew 26, uh, other, other Mark and, and Luke, where we can see the accounts of uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, where, where Jesus Christ poured out his heart to God, asking if it was possible if it was possible for this cup that was placed before him where he would become the, the substitution, he would become the living sacrifice, the true propitiation for our sins, if it was possible that God could yet forgive man and reconcile man unto himself by any other means. But God, but God is holy, first of all, and God has already established a pattern, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament, that by these things, they reflect a pattern in heaven that by, by the shedding of blood, there is, there is remission of sin. There is no other way for forgiveness of sin to occur in man but by the shedding of blood. That pattern was established in the Old Testament and when there was no other way. There was no other way. And Jesus' famous statement was, not my will, but thy will be done. And to some degree... When we take the first step in faith, when we hear the milk and drink of the milk, we, we come to that same place in the Garden of Gethsemane where we come and recognize it's not my will, Lord, but I'm willing to submit my will to your will and believe in thee. This chapter, however, has a lot more in it. And it didn't occur to me until very recently as I went through it, because when you read something you're familiar with, it's good to sort of move away from it for a while and come back and try to read it afresh. Or whenever we read the Bible, this is a basic truth, whenever we read the Bible, we need to ask God to open our eyes. It is a living word. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and His Spirit is, is in us. So as we read this this word of God, we want the Spirit to teach us what it is we need to know. And for me, when I read this recently, what spoke out to me was verse 11. Verse 11 says, Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. And I thought to myself, what is it that I am dull of hearing about? And, and of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered. Then it occurred to me as I read this that, in fact, the author of this, of this letter, the letter to the Hebrews, which scholars believe is Apostle Paul, he went on to speak about, and his very last topic, verse 10, is, is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the author of this letter, for all intents and purposes, let's say Apostle Paul, wanted to speak further about Melchizedek. It was Melchizedek. Melchizedek, it was, it was he whom 
the, the Apostle Paul wanted to speak further to those who would receive this letter, but they would have a hard time understanding it because it would be difficult. And it would require a different set of ears. It would require a, a different state of mind and understanding for the listener to understand what further Apostle Paul wanted to mention about Melchizedek. And then I thought to myself, what was it that he wanted to say? What was it that me, if I'm sitting still in a state where I can only absorb the milk of the word of God, those very basic rudiments, and I'm not moving on towards that maturity required of me, because the Bible says here that, that full age or, or uh, strong meat, and we're not talking about, it's, this is another figure of speech, we're not talking about physically eating strong meat. We're talking about receiving statements and concepts and teachings and doctrines from the Word of God that are difficult and hard not only to understand but also to put in practice because they require an, an additional measure of selflessness and of uh, humility and of holiness and of spiritual maturity. And it says that that kind of, uh, the, re the receiving of that kind of teaching and understanding is, is made possible by someone who is full of age. We're not talking about someone who's old here. It's not qualifying full of age. It's just another, it's, this is another, just a, a term. It doesn't mean that you have to reach a certain age physically, then you're able to take on strong or difficult concepts from the Bible, but rather that you have reached a state of maturity. You have reached a certain level of maturity. And how do you reach that level of maturity? The Bible says here, even or, or and, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised. So we reach a state of maturity when we have our senses exercised, our spiritual senses. We're not talking about physical senses. We're not talking about intellect here. We're not talking about our, our academic or, or intellectual capabilities, but our ability to discern and hear the Spirit of God, speaking to us figuratively again through the Scripture, being able to contemplate and meditate upon these things and then reflecting in our own lives and in the lives of others that we experience and be able to see that, in fact, those truths are evident and are, and are real. But those senses, our spiritual discernment, has to be exercised in order for us to be spiritually mature. And you can't, and neither can I, necessarily design the right exercise regime that will allow us to grow spiritually mature. Certainly, we can take a step towards that by spending time in the Word of God daily, by spending quiet time, by, by studying, by reading. And I'm, not, and I'm not an advocate whatsoever of, you know, if you lack knowledge, go out and buy some Christian book out there that's going to teach you what the Bible says. In fact, I feel if you do that, you're robbing yourself of the ability to exercise the spirit that is in you. What you want to do is you want to anchor yourself in this word of God and search the scriptures and give time for the spirit to bring revelation and understanding to you. And when you do that, your understanding and knowledge is, is going to grow. And so it says here that we can take a step forward towards exercising our spiritual senses by spending time in the Word of God. But really, 
That spiritual exercise, that exercise regime is best administered and designed by God. God will create situations in your life. He will create situa situations in your life because spiritual discernment, the end goal of spiritual discernment is not that you're so wise or that I am so wise or that I am wiser or smarter or more knowledgeable in the, in the word of God than anyone else. That's not the intent and that is not the objective of being spiritually exercised. The objective is to become, uh, to reach the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ, to become like him, to reach that state in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, day after day, month after month, year after year, where God brings you to a higher level, a much harder uh, Garden of Gethsemane, where you're able to say, not my will, but your will be done. Where you can have complete assurance in your heart and complete faith as if you are holding his hand and you can trust him completely with whatever comes your way because you know him. You've exercised that spiritual discernment. You've come to know him as a trusted father. You can grow. And that is the objective of spiritual discernment. It's not knowledge. The Bible says knowledge puffeth up, but love edifies, charity edifies. It is the love that we have towards God. It is the spiritual discernment that, that grows through an exercise of that discernment through God, administered by God, designed by God, so that we may know him as our father and be like his son and willing to submit to his will. When I read this, I kept on reading because I was intrigued whether the author, whether Apostle Paul would actually go back to, chapter, to verse 11 and say, well, this is actually what I wanted to tell you about, about Melchizedek. This is what I really wanted to tell you. I just, I just first need to tell you that in order for you to understand what I wanted to tell you, you need to be spiritually mature. You need to, have, you need to reach a certain level. And as I kept reading, I, I, I discovered to myself that, in fact, he does. Apostle Paul, or the author of Hebrews, does, in fact, tell us what he wanted to tell us in verse 11 about Melchizedek. And I'd like to read some verses here, and I hope that for the sake of time we, we can bear it. Beginning with verse 13 of chapter 6, I'm going to read right through ver, uh, chapter 7. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For man verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability or the unchangeable nature of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither or where the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, as context here, Psalm 110 verse 4 tells us that's the quote 
that this chapter is referring to, where God, in, through the Spirit, speaks through David, and David says that, that, that God swore that, that, that Jesus would be after the order of Melchizedek, a high priest. For this Melchizedek, and now this is now in the context of what happened in Genesis 14, when, if you recall, for those of you who, who grew up in Sunday school or have read the Old Testament, remember that, that um, the, the lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Abraham's nephew, and uh, uh, those, Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the surrounding cities were attacked. Lot was taken captive. Abraham, with several hundred of his men, went and chased after the invading army to rescue Lot, and he did. And he rescued Lot and, and took back all the spoil. And this king of Salem, called Melchizedek, met Abraham on the way back and blessed him. And you can read it when you have time. So it says here, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness. This is king of Salem. It's speaking about what... What, what was his name, the significance of his name, this Melchizedek, king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. He is without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Abraham gave tithe unto Melchizedek, tenth of the spoil. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. So according to the law of Moses, the priests of the tribe of Levi were to receive tithes of the, of the other tribes. But here, Abraham gives tithes to Melchizedek. But he whose descent is not counted from them, which is uh, Melchizedek, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And the author wants to be emphatic here and says, and without all contradiction, there's no contradiction here in what I'm going about to say. The less Abraham is blessed of the better, Melchizedek, lest we think that Father Abraham, Abraham, the father of faith, you know, that we should you know, we should be consider him, considering him as the less, but in, in comparison with Melchizedek, he was the less. Melchizedek, the better, blessed Abraham. And here, men that die receive tithes. In other words, he's pointing back to the, the priesthood. The Levites receive tithe of their brethren, and yet they die. But there, meaning Melchizedek, received of them, of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may say so, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So what, the, what Apostle Paul is saying here is that, figuratively speaking, the Levites who, who came, who were descendants who, you know, of Abraham, they were as if you, if you would accept it in the loins of Abraham, so they in, in, in fact gave tithes to Melchizedek. So the children of Levi who receive of the, of the rest of the tribes of Israel tithes, they in turn gave tithes while in the loins of Abraham to this 
king of Salem, Melchizedek, who is, who is a, a priest continually, without, without beginning, without end, without father, without mother. We don't understand this. There's very little said about Melchizedek elsewhere in the scripture. We don't know what happened to this man. But the scripture draws a comparison, a parallel. And that's what Apostle Paul wanted us to understand. That the parallel has a significance for our faith. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? In other words, if, if back in Psalm 110, God said that in reference to Jesus Christ that he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, why would God bring a change to the Levitical priesthood by making that proclamation way back in Psalm 110 that Jesus would be this high priest like Melchizedek, who would be continuous, without end, and without beginning. He's saying that if therefore perfection was by the Levitical priesthood, if we were able to attain a level of completeness and maturity through the priesthood, and remember the priesthood, as we read in chapter 5, they, they were there to administer uh, verse, chap verse 2, chapter 5, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity, and by reason hereof he ought also for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. So the, the priesthood himself was compassed about. He was surrounded by infirmity, weaknesses, human weaknesses. And one human weakness after another human weakness characterized the priesthood in the Levitical order. And the children of Israel are expected to go to a weak man who would then administer the offerings on their behalf and would entreat God that based on the offerings, they, their sins would be covered and forgiven. But their conscience would not be made pure, but their sins, those immediate sins would be covered and they would be forgiven. And yet that very same person that would administer the mechanism for forgiveness, which was the law and the offerings and the shedding of blood, he himself was imperfect. He himself required someone to shed uh, or, or for sacrifices to be shed on his behalf as well. And it's saying that that whole system could not possibly complete you nor me. Us coming to man, weak man, fragile man, Man, encompassed with their own weaknesses, we could not possibly attain full, complete maturity and wholesomeness and wholeness through that system. And so it was necessary that there would be a change in that way in which we would come to God, in which we would you know, go through a weak man into in God through these offerings and mechanisms of, of forgiveness. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he who, of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. And this is referring now to Jesus. Jesus is that high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but he was not of the lineage of Aaron. He did not come from the tribe of Levi, which was based on the commandment of Moses and according to the law where the priest would come. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, 
for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who is made not after the law of cardinal commandment. In other words, after the, after the order and commandments that required you to have to, the prerequisite for being a priest was not your spiritual maturity or your holiness. It was because you came from the lineage of Aaron, because you came from the Levitical uh, tribe. That was the prerequisite. And so in some ways, the author is saying that that is carnal. It's not because of some other greater order that appointed you a priesthood. But who is made, Jesus, who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, and this is Psalm 110, verse 4, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is the power of an endless life. For there is verily a disannulling or annulling of the commandment going before or the previous commandment for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. This author is telling us that that commandment to have mere mortal man encompassed with their own weaknesses, and you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, we can say we are truly encompassed with our own weaknesses. And it's not possible for any holy man on this earth, whether it is a minister, an elder, or, or any other kind of holy person on this, on this world, to, to, be, to have a position where they can really in, in, in fulfill that, that true priesthood that the law had in mind. It, was the, it had the image and the pattern of things that are in heaven, but certainly it was weak. And it says here that it was not profitable in the end. It was weak and not profitable for us to go to God through the Levitical priesthood to attain forgiveness. For the law made nothing perfect or whole, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh to God. So the change of the priesthood where we bring in Jesus Christ through a power of endless life, through the, the, the immutable, our unchangeable oath of God that, that he is, this, this Jesus Christ is eternal, without beginning, without end, the one who is like Melchizedek. That brings greater hope, hope that we can draw to, hope that we can cling to. It says here, it says in verse 19 of, of chapter 6, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It is the anchor of our soul. The hope we have in an unchanging oath of God that Jesus is this high priest. And it says here, inasmuch as not without an oath he was made a priest, in other words, he was made a priest with an oath, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that saith unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This, this verse from Psalm 110, verse 4, has been, has been repeated so many times in this letter. And then it says here in verse 22, By so much was Jesus made a surety or a guarantor of a better testament or a better covenant. By so much by so much more, because God gave an unchanging oath that Jesus would be this high priest forever for you and me, so that we have Jesus, who now, because of this oath, has become a guarantor of a better testament. We have a better testament in the faith in Jesus Christ than they had in the Old Testament, which was administered through the Levitical priesthood. That was change. It was weak, unprofitable. 
encompassed around with weaknesses of man. But now we have a much greater guarantee of something so much better that Jesus Christ, by the oath of God, became the guarantor that this faith in Jesus Christ is so much better than what the Old Testament offered through the Levitical priesthood. And they truly were, may, were many priests. He's going now back thinking, uh, looking back to the Levitical priesthood because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. In other words, th there were many priests that took the office of the priesthood in the Old Testament because the priests didn't live forever. One would die, the next one would take, the, to take their place and so forth. But this man, Jesus, but this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Because he is unchangeable, because he liveth forever, because he was made the guarantor of a better hope by an oath of God that is unchangeable, immutable, because God declared that he is after the order of Melchizedek. We can, we can come to God with, and he is able to save us that come unto him, seeing he ever liveth to maketh intercession for them. For such an high priest became us. This is a little bit confusing. The word became us is, or is, is becoming of us or was appropriate for him or fitting for him. For, for us to receive him, it was becoming that he should become our priest. It was fitting that Jesus Christ should become our high priest. Why was it fitting? Because to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh man high priests which are in, have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, it was before the law, maketh the Son, Jesus Christ, who is consecrated forevermore. And I'd like to read a few verses from chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered into, in once into the holy place, becoming the mercy seat for us. having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an high heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. This is the hope that is an anchor to our soul. This, this whole thing that was read, that we meditated upon, I believe is precisely what Apostle Paul meant in verse 11, of whom we have many things to say, of whom this man Melchizedek, and his parallel with Christ, and the meaning of that parallel, we have many things to say about that. What does this mean to us? 2 Timothy chapter 1. Brother Doug recently quoted from this. Verse 12. 
For the which cause I also suffer these things. This is Apostle Paul's writing to Timothy. For the which cause I also suffer these things, suffering for Christ. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded, I am fully persuaded in my mind that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. You come to that understanding. You come to that understanding when you walk with God, when you allow your spiritual senses to be exercised by him. You can say with confidence, for I know him, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed against, unto him against that day. To us then, there are tremendous riches in the word of God. And for us to attain to the level of hope and faith that God wants of us, we need to be exercised. We need to be exercised spiritually so that our, our senses, our spiritual discernment is made sharp and we can see God in every aspect of our lives. And we can see him shaping us and molding us. Recently, I, I read uh, a definition for the word meekness, and I, I sent it to some, someone recently. But one of, those, one of the definitions for meekness, which I thought was so good, was the ability to be at peace under any circumstance, recognizing that it is God who has designed and orchestrated the circumstances in our lives. And I thought, meekness is a characteristic of one who is full of age, who is spiritually mature. Because when we can accept God and what he's doing in our lives and how ultimately, as bad as it may seem, as difficult as the, diff the situation may be, when we see him molding us, chiseling areas of our life, pruning those offshoots that are going to take away from the real fruit that needs to be born, we can have peace. We can rest assured that God will see us through. That is the hope that we have for the anchor of our soul. Amen. As uh, Brother Alan was preaching, my mind went to several verses concerning this whole um, topic of the law and why God changed his mind, apparently. Why did he change his mind? Why did he have one law and bring in another law? Why did he bring the law of Moses, uh, the Levitical priesthood, and then bring in the law of Christ and the, the, the priesthood of Christ? He read, Brother Alan read how it was unprofitable but does God make things that are unprofitable? Is God imperfect? Did God make a mistake? Did he change his mind because he made a mistake? If we read um, Hebrews chapter 8, it says in verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second covenant. 
So I say, if it had been faultless, it leaves the reader to think, oh, it was faultless. But keep reading. Verse 8. For finding fault with them, with the people, finding fault with the people, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the first covenant, which I made with their fathers, to the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt and so forth, because they continued not in my covenant. So the fault wasn't with God's law. God planned it that way. God designed it for that way. And I, I'm trying to, I try to look for the verse that Brother Allen once quoted before from Galatians, who said, For if there had been a law that would have delivered righteousness, then the righteousness would have come by the law. God never meant us to be justified by the law of Moses. But the reason he brought the law of Moses in was to reveal to us just how depraved and how sinful we are. The purpose of the law was to reveal our sin. That was the extent of the law. And go into the book of Galatians, go into the book of Romans, when Paul, who held the law, who was blameless according to the law, Philippians 3 says, yet he himself realised that the, he said, if the Lord did not say, thou shalt not covet, I wouldn't know that I was a coveter, to paraphrase that. And the law was something, was a school teacher, he says in Galatians, to bring us to Christ. It was a school teacher to teach us that we are sinners by nature. We are sinners. We are destined for hellfire if we don't do something about it. But we can't. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this predicament, from this body of death? It had to be the second priest, Jesus Christ, made after the order of Melchizedek, who doesn't die, who was not full of failure and fault, who his, through his precious blood was able to shed his blood for us, that we could reach out to this precious high priest and cry out for mercy and grace, even though we have failed the law. And because he bare our sins in his body, he can then justify us, not by our works, but by our faith in his shed blood. And say, so why did this have to take 2,000 years or more? Why couldn't have God just given us a saviour from the very beginning? And all we have to do is believe. Well, he's just, we've proved to ourselves that he's done, done that. And there are people that still reject him, that still want to justify themselves by works. And they have to go through their own exodus. They've got to go through their own wandering in the wilderness. They've got to go through their own trials to realize that you cannot justify yourself by your works, by how good you are. So everyone goes through that, through that process of wandering in the wilderness, of being subject to God's... Um, punishments and, 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 and trials and, and until we humble ourselves before God and say, I can do nothing of myself. We heard about meekness. I can do nothing of myself. Without him, I am nothing. I, I can only grasp onto the, the mercy of Jesus Christ and by his sacrificial atonement, which is what propitiation means, accept salvation through his shed blood. May the Lord bless the word that we've heard this morning.
To him be the glory evermore. Amen. This concludes our service. Uh, because of the... Um,